Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we're talking with a variety of Pomona College faculty members about how they came to study what they study, teach what they teach, and love the field they love. Today, we're talking with professor of theater and dance, Anthony Shea, a dancer and choreographer who studies how dance can represent political power. Tony, thank you for joining us. Um, let's start with your background as a dancer and choreographer. Um, did you always want to be a dancer or was, there, was that something you discovered later in life? Actually, it was something I discovered uh, later in life. I began as a kid um, and discovered music. And music is what empowered me as a teenager, as the oddball kid in school. And uh, music is became my life. And my big desire was to be the first flutist of the New York Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. um, so I pursued that. I went through junior high school, uh, where in those days in Los Angeles, uh, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. So um, I went to John Muir Junior High School and I played the flute. And then in my uh, sophomore year, my family bought a ranch up in Oregon and we moved up to Oregon and I was a farmer <laughs> for the next few years, uh, but I continued to play the flute and... Uh, a flute playing farmer. A flute playing farmer. The cows liked it seemingly. <laughs> <laughs> when I played outside in the field, they would come and listen. Uh, Cap so, captive audience, I guess. Captive audience. Actually, they weren't. That was the best part about them. So then... Um, I went into college and uh, started Los Angeles City College at a time, actually, when uh, Cal State LA was on the same campus with mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. It was the day of trolley cars. I used to take the trolley car to school. It cost 10 cents, and then one year it went up to 20. <gasps> Big deal yeah. in those days. So uh, I went to City College, then I went to UCLA. Still wanting to be a flutist. Still wanting to be a flutist. Uh, although entering Los Angeles City College, I discovered folk dance. Mm -hmm. So this began to take up more and more of my time. This is in the 1950s. And in 1956, the first dance companies from the Soviet Union, from uh, the former Yugoslavia, appeared in Los Angeles within six months of each other, strangely enough. Uh, first came the company from Macedonia called Tanitz. The second was the Kolo Ensemble. And I saw them on the stage doing dances that I had learned as a recreational because dance was pretty recreational up until that time. Mm -hmm. And it became a very widespread hobby in the United States. Recreational folk dance became, actually millions of people were engaged in doing it. And then um, I went to City College and I started learning Persian from a bunch of my friends who were in my classes. And one of them kind of dared me to learn the language. He said, no Americans ever learned. He said, we have 10,000 Americans in Tehran. They can't even count to 10. And I thought, 
you know, those were the days when you felt patriotic. I'm going to do it. So, <laughs> so the way I did it was listening to uh, records of people singing. And I learned the songs and I memorized them. So I'm cutting all this very mm-hmm. short. It's like a Rube Goldberg device of, uh, <laughs> it, it, of how, to, how to go from being a flutist to a dancer. Yes, it, 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 it really has that feeling to it. So um, I did go to, so the, the Shaw came to the United States and this was in 1958, the year I graduated from UCLA. By this time, I, my Persian was really almost native Hmm. because I learned from people around me. There Mm -hmm. were no formal classes Mm -hmm. in those days. So I'm not sure there are any formal classes in Persian in most, I mean, where do you go to study Persian in the U.S.? uh, UCLA for one place. Oh, yes. UCLA, um, Mm -hmm. Harvard, almost all the big uh, universities have it. And here you can take it via, what are those kinds of classes you take language classes that mm-hmm. they don't teach here yeah. but you do ah, it it's another institution yeah. right mm-hmm. but at any rate i learned it as as a, a young student and in fact um one of the funniest things that happened you know if you learn it from a bunch of guys that are your age so you learn all the <laughs> bad words first and then you <laughs> Um, as in any language. Right, <laughs> as in any language. And But in Persian, I I got caught up in learning the literature, and the literature was just magnificent. There is nothing quite like Persian literature. And, um, and, and the role of poetry in that society is, is unique. There's nothing. You, 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 they have, for instance, rotary clubs here. You would not think of beginning a meeting without reciting a famous poem. Hmm. You'd, it just wouldn't happen. It's the first thing you hear in the radio in the morning in Iran. So poetry is 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 major. Anyway, the Shah came and they had a big student conference and they invited me to come sing. So I sang for the Shah and he asked me if I would like to go to Iran. And I said, it would be a dream. So I went to Iran and... I was enrolled as a student at the Faculty of Literature and Languages at the University of Tehran. A short time after I got there, the uh, Tehran Symphony had auditions. So I thought, okay, I'll throw in my hat in the ring. So I went down to the auditions. Were there many uh, Americans or any any who was not? No, no no Americans, definitely Uh not. Um, So... I became principal flutist for the Tehran Symphony. So I realized my dream fairly early on. Um, and it was very exciting. And through that so full circle, it was full circle. So I met, of course, lots of uh, people in the arts. And I, I led a really wonderful existence while I was there. And I sang in the radio in Persian folk songs because... My favorite singer passed away about three months after I arrived, and the director of her orchestra found out, and he came and saw me at my dorm room and said, would I come to the radio and 
and sing. And I said, uh, a, a memoriam for her. So I sang this hour-long program with, the, with uh, one of the state orchestras. So that was, that was my musical thing. So I came back to the United States and got, uh, and in 1958, just before I left for Iran, the Moise of Dance Company came. Now, the Moise of Dance Company was the first, first formal folk dance company. And I use the word in air quotes because folk dance is not what they did. Um, they did, if you think of Irish step dancing in a pub where you're, you know, you go for a good stout or whatever and you watch it and people are getting up and shuffling around, it would be like seeing river dance right after it. Then, mm. then, you, then you get an idea of what, what you're really looking at. So the Moise of Dance Company came to America and I can hear the State Department because 15 years after the war and they're still wrangling over this cultural exchange bit the Americans are terrified. What are the Russians going to send us? And they say Russians and and Soviets because they can't figure out the difference. <laughs> and um, so, I, so I'm looking at this uh, company, and you know, it's like I want to run off to the circus and join this group. I want to run to Moscow and become a member of the Moisev Dance Company. So, um, you know. Part of what brought, part of what I did after I got here into Pomona College was to look at what it was I had been doing in my youth, right? Mm -hmm. So unlike chemistry professors and history professors who don't have firsthand experience with what they did, I'm actually teaching about what I did as I look back and analyze what, what was it I was doing? What brought me into that world? Because when I got back, I started my first dance company, and this is where I had to make a decision. Was I going to be a musician or was I going to be a dancer? Because I knew I could not be both. Mm -hmm. And having thought it out and analyzing it for myself, I realized that as a choreographer, I was entering a world where I was doing something original. I was using folk material, but I used it in the same way Tchaikovsky does Russian folk songs. They aren't Russian folk songs once the New York Philharmonic is playing mm -hmm. his second symphony, right? So I, I looked at it and I also looked at the situation in Los Angeles and there were maybe 90 jobs and 900 flute players. And I thought, am I one of the best three that can make it to the Philharmonic? And I thought, even though I had played in the Tehran Symphony, I didn't think so. I didn't think I was going to be in that top tier. First of all, I was pretty much self-taught, you know, growing up in South Central L.A., in a duplex with a wall bed in the, in the, <laughs> that I slept on. This is not conducive to going to high class 
flute players. And this is when you discover there is such a thing as class and that you're not in the first one. And, but as a, as a choreographer, I had something unique. Mm-hmm. And I built my company. Um, the first few years, we called it the Village Dancers because we met at Westwood Village at UCLA. And then I changed the name to the Amon Folk Ensemble. And that company grew to be 90 people. Mm. Um, none of us got paid, but <laughs> we were, it was the first company the Dorothy Chandler invited to dance at the Dorothy Chandler mm-hmm. Pavilion, mm-hmm. the first local company. Mm-hmm. Because by this time, we were as good as a national dance company. And we had all live music. All the dancers were required to sing. Um, and and uh, when Martin Bernheimer from the LA Times came to review us, he said, I was Martin come lately. I should have seen this company years ago. I had heard about the dedication. And so I was doing really unique work uh, to the point that in uh, 2013, the dance company held its uh, 50th anniversary. Of course, we're all in our 70s and 80s at this point. But, you know, years of dancers came. Over 500 people showed up. Oh. And they were, they were talking about how being in this company was the most important thing they had ever done in their life. And they asked me to give the keynote because I was the founder. And I said, I have, if this had not been the sixties, I don't think you people would have put your lives in my hands and come four nights a week, Sundays from one to 10. And, you know, Marriage is made, marriage is broken, needless to say. I mean, it was... And these were all people with day jobs, I And assume. these are all people with day jobs. And my day job was a, as a librarian. So mm-hmm. I was a librarian for the city of Los Angeles for 30 years. When I graduated from... Uh, graduated. <laughs> I think it's retired <laughs> is the word. <laughs> it felt hey, like I like graduated. After, I'm I, close to graduation I, myself. Right go. after 30 years, you feel like you've been you're graduating, <laughs> right? So, but it was but it was a retirement, and I just as I retired, the uh, University of California Riverside said that they were opening the first PhD program in dance history and theory. Because until that time in North America and in Europe, there was no doctoral program in the field of dance. The highest you could go to was a master's degree. Like an MFA? An MFA. And the MFA was really designed to send people out to teach modern dance. Well, I was not a modern dancer, that's for certain. And I thought... What a wonderful way to tie up my life, to, to, to put the bow on the Christmas present. I had had such a stunning existence as a choreographer. When the Philippine National Company, the Bayanihan, as it's known, 
was supposed to tour the United States. And in those days, um, uh, the biggest of all of the impresarios was in New York City. And Saul Hirok was his name. And the Bayanihan Company canceled their three-month tour. And Saul Hirok had heard of us. And this must have been 1967, around that time. And he flew out to UCLA to see us dance at Royce Hall. And he signed us up for the 30, for the three month hmm. tour. So, you know, of course they had to pay all of our hotels and food and all of that stuff. So the company went out and we did this three month tour for the Bayanihan company. And it was after that, of course, that the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, I think they brought us in 1970. And, and so the company we later found out from the National Endowment for the Arts was the most requested company after the New York City Ballet in the entire United States. Oh, that wow. our company was, we were doing dances from uh, Eastern Europe and the Middle East and North Africa. And it, it was such we had brought that company to such a level of performance that there was literally nothing like it. Unlike the national company of Yugoslavia or Poland, where you do Polish dances or you do dances from the former Yugoslavia, we were doing dances from wherever it, we wished to do it. So mm -hmm. we weren't it, it, we weren't restricted in the same way. And we did some Americana in our repertoire. So as I went back to grad school, and I'm entering grad school at the age of 57. So for me, this was going to be, you know, I'm going to go to grad school. Mm -hmm. And I never thought beyond that. For me, this was going to be, I mean, after you retire, you lunch with the ladies, as I was told. <laughs> and so I went to grad school thinking this was the end of my quite distinguished career. I mean, I was very happy as a choreographer. I was quite good at it. And what I discovered in, in grad school was that I could write. And I had no idea I was a decent writer. And you had a lot to say. And I had a lot, lot to say uh -huh. because I had lived this very rich life where I was interacting with members of these national companies. Um, when I would travel to Croatia or to uh, Mexico, I would go and hang out with with their national companies, and they were very welcoming to me. Um, now, along the way, um, I realized, okay, if I'm going to do dances from uh, Croatia or Serbia, I'm going to have to learn the language because all of the instructions for how to do the dances were in those native languages. There was no Google Translate. There were no, they were not. And even if there were. And even if there were. So, um, so I, uh, and, and this was the first thing, of course, that I figured out about dances. Why folk dance? Mm -hmm. 
Why was folk dance so incredibly important to these governments? Well, if you look back, as I eventually did, to the 18th century, there is a figure, Johann Gottfried Herder, a German man, who came up with the notion that the purest language of a people, in his case, the German people, but you can expand this to Czech or Polish or others, was the language and the language spoken by the peasants. So what do we have in our life that we get very early on that was the fruit of this thinking? The Grimm's fairy tales. Because the brothers Grimm, under the influence of Herder, went out among German peasants and collected the tales in the exact voice mm -hmm. in which they were told. Mm -hmm. And what this meant was any place these tales were told and that language was spoken belonged to the people who told it. And therefore, this is German folk tales. This is German land, and the Germans who live on it have the right to it. And so folklore then became a means of proving that the people who inhabited the land where those songs were sung and those dances were danced, this was the people's right to do this. And so this folklore in the minds of many people became the purest expression of national sentiment. Mm -hmm. Not ballet, not modern, none of this. It was folklore. Because of the, the deep traditions involved in Because them. of the deep traditions. But it couldn't be just folklore. Because if you were to go to a dance in a village, and I don't care where it is, at the most, there would be four or five dances done at a wedding, and out would come the local beverage, and everybody would dance for, you know, hours, and they would do these four dances for hours. You cannot put this on the stage. This would <laughs> not fly. <laughs> so how are we going to transform this onto the stage. Yeah, that was one of the things I was curious about as you were talking. Um, how, how much of what you're doing as a choreographer is trying to be true to the traditions of the dance that you're presenting and how much is creating something for an audience that's based on those traditions? What a great question. So in many cases, the first case we got was the Moiseyev Company. Igor Moiseev, I just finished the book. It just went to print right. <laughs> <laughs> on Igor Moiseev and his life. Igor Moiseev began his life as a ballet dancer. His father in the Russian Revolution, I have to backtrack. Igor Moiseev lived from 1906 to 2007. Needless to say, he had a long life <laughs> through the Tsarist regime, through the Bolsheviks, through the communists, and then through the <laughs> Russian Federation. So this man lived a very long life. So his father, to keep him off the streets because uh, the streets were dangerous during the, the, the revolutionary period, there was no food. You know, you paid people in firewood and, and 
they had been essentially reduced to barter. So his father took him to a ballerina and she within two months said, I can't do anything more for this kid. So they took him to the Bolshoi at age 11. So he enters the Bolshoi theater. He becomes imbued with what we call character dance. And character dance is when you go to the ballet, it's um, if you go to the ballet, um, you see Sleeping Beauty or Swan Lake and you have the Polish variation and the Spanish variation and the Italian variation. And these became very big in the 19th century ballet and uh, elite uh, urban people thought they were being taken on a trip that the choreographer could see into the heart of the Spaniards and get their two basic essential characteristics, castanets, you know. And uh, so, so we know it's Spanish because right. they've got a comb in their hair and two castanets. And so we know we're looking at real Spanish stuff here, right? So, uh, of course, it's all just ballet. But nevertheless, this is what we're looking at. We're looking at a, a, a mindset that Igor Moiseev came with that you could capture the two basic or three basic elements, pride, um, uh, youth, um, sexiness, uh, they wouldn't have been sexy in those days. They would have been uh, emotional. So, uh, <laughs> so, we, so he begins to choreograph in the most spectacular manner. He creates a whole new vocabulary. So when the Soviet Union said, okay, we're going to send the Moiseyev Dance Company to you, they called it, it was officially the... Uh, state uh, ensemble of folk dances of the peoples of the Soviet Union. Mm. So we called it the Moisev Company for obvious reasons because the, <laughs> the original title's in Russian. And so we, we have Moisev coming over and I can hear them to this day in my ears mm. at the State Department saying, folk dance. <laughs> How dangerous can folk dance be? Well, they soon found out because when the Moisev appeared, I think half the audience went to see if they had tails and horns as the State <laughs> Department had been telling Americans for 15 years. And that if you go into a dark place, somebody with a gray suit and a fedora is going to <laughs> seize you like a vampire and turn you into an evil communist, right? So here comes the Moisev Dance Company. 100 dancers, all these young, fresh-faced Slavic kids bounding across the stage, doing things. And America in 1958 had never seen dancing like this. Never. We had nothing like it. The New York City Ballet and the San Francisco Ballet were it. We didn't have ballet companies in America. So when they tell you that Rue St. Denis and, and uh, Isadora Duncan rejected ballet, they had never seen ballet. There was nothing for them to reject, right? So that's, that's another part of my teaching. We do revisionist uh, dance history. But so the Moisev Dance Company came and the media followed them everywhere. 
what do you think of American men or women, depending on who their interviewee was? Uh, what do you think of Disneyland? What do you think of our grocery stores, our department stores, our clothing stores? You know, on and on it went. And they followed them everywhere. When they showed up to Los Angeles, there were bomb threats from the John Birch Society oh, and every movie star in town had to be there to escort them in. I mean, it was a media circus and it was they were scalping tickets on the steps for 10 times the price. Wow. It was unbelievable. And the State Department was totally caught off guard mm. and did not know what to do to send back to the Soviet Union. So, so this is what folk dance was and became. And so I, of course, uh, when I went back to grad school, I'm starting to look at what, what was this I was doing. I did not take the Moiseev route. I, I was trying to be truer to the traditions and use every authentic means I could to convey to my audiences what a Croatian wedding would look like. Mm -hmm. And actually, I was pretty successful at it. I remember we did an all-Croatian show and I had this woman come back and she must have been, she seemed very old to me at the time, right? <laughs> uh, she must have been 60. <laughs> so here she is with tears in her eyes and she said, you know, I was married in that village and that's just how it was. Wow. And, I, and I looked at her, I mean, I hugged her and but I knew it wasn't like she, it, her, her wedding took five days. Mine took 17 minutes. So it was a condensation. Of so, so there was a, there was a distillation yeah. of, of the elements, but I had gotten the elements correctly to the point where it brought all of her memories back. And even 25 years after that, the priest in the Croatian church is turning a hundred and he came up and took my hand and he said, I thought I'd never see my homeland again, but that night I saw it in my life. It's and beautiful. So yeah. these were real experiences that I had that allowed me to realize what I was doing was, was somehow extremely important, but I wasn't clear because I was so deeply into it that I couldn't see clearly. Mm -hmm. So going back to graduate school as a senior person. Before we take, before we go back to graduate school, let's talk a little bit more about, about the dance. The dance um, itself. Yeah, if we could. The, sure. Um, what was it about, about um, Middle Eastern and Eastern European folk dance that, that captured your imagination? So. Uh, okay. And I even wrote a book about it. <laughs> It's called Crossing a, 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 a Dancing Across Borders. And I called it that because here I'm, I grew up in South Central LA in a very ethnically diverse neighborhood. I grew up speaking Spanish because I, I told Patty all my friends were, you know, Mexican Americans and I'm playing on the streets and that, that's the language mm -hmm. I spoke. And, uh, and, and to the point actually where, 
uh, when I went to Oregon, I, I never used Spanish. There were only, you know, it was all white bread up there. <laughs> so I came back and we have all these foreign students at UCLA. They had a huge foreign student program there. And I came home one day and I said to my mom, why am I speaking Spanish? All these people from Guatemala and Panama and Colombia and I'm speaking Spanish. And she said, don't you remember when you were a kid, that's what you spoke <laughs> when you were, so, so I, 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 I realized that some, a, a lot when I realized that. So here's, I am with basically no ethnicity. I'm, I'm a, I'm a white guy with no, no ethnicity. I'm the default mode, white male. Mm -hmm. Everybody else has an identity and I have none. 47, 57 varieties. Is that <laughs> something? And so the, the, the first guys I'm really close and friendly with at, UC, at LACC, because when I went to Los Angeles City College, there were no kids from my high school because I had been up in Oregon, in central Oregon, and just gotten back, spent my last five months in Whittier High School. Mm -hmm. I didn't make close friends or anything. So I... I realize I'm this guy with no identity. I have no identity of my own. You know, for us, high culture was listening to Fred wearing chorus in the morning on the radio <laughs> before I go to school. So I'm a guy with no, no ethnic identity. And I'm meeting these guys from Iran who come from 3,000 years of, of identity, of uh, that they can culture. identify, mm -hmm. they have this huge long thing, and I have a fake American history, <laughs> and I realize, you know, George Washington isn't throwing uh, coins across the Potomac and telling his father nonsense. Um, so here, I, I, it's like water on parched ground to see these colorful dances mm -hmm. and songs and. And so I think that's what drew me into it was something so, um, so exotic for me. That Do you remember the first that you saw? The first, uh, well, the first actually were the dances that I was learning in. Uh, yes, I do remember. Uh, I belonged to what they call the Visa American Club, which was all these foreign students plus me and one or two others, American kids. And we went to Solvang. Mm. And Solvang in 1950 was really a replica of a Danish village. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, it wasn't the Disney-esque. It's not a caricature of a Disney It wasn't. The, yeah, it wasn't what it is today. It was, it was, they were. Authentic. And they all still had their national costumes. And they gave us some. Oh. And they taught us some of the dances. So I choreographed them for four of us to show at a party. And that was so. my first choreography. <laughs> and that was my, I mean, Denmark. Can you imagine Denmark as exotic in this day and age? So, yeah. So yeah. that shows you how desperate I was. But you picked up the dances very quickly. <clears throat> uh, yes, I, I was a good dancer. So by the time I had my uh, company, we had a group called the Gandhi Dancers that I danced in. And every year we would do 
a single dance. We would prepare it. We called it an exhibition. And that dance we would show at the uh, California Folk Dance Federation, which still exists today. And they're going to be here on our campus in May Mm. at Smith Campus Center for their annual folk dance. They're all, it's, it's the graying of folk dance. Nobody folk dances anymore who, who didn't learn it when I did. But they, they will be here. They're still going strong. Um, and, and what happened was it was a recreational international folk dancing. And the recreational part bored me within a year after I entered it. It just wasn't something I wanted. You'd go into a gym and you would you would dance 30 dances from different places and the question you asked earlier you're right the the somebody has to take those dances and distill them down into their basic parts otherwise they're unlearnable and the reason they're unlearnable is people think of folk dance as something that is handed down like a jewel from generation to generation and it's untouched and that's not how it works. They're very improvised. Uh, if you learn how to do a poke, you don't want to do it like your granddad did. You do it the way you do it, right? <laughs> so so the, the learning these dances, somebody had to did, do them down. That in itself is a history it's a part of women's history in the U.S. because women who worked with immigrants in the 1900s, in around 1900, actually um, distilled these dance. They would go abroad to Western Europe because this was a very racist country. So only dances from Northwestern Europe were were acceptable. Mm -hmm. So they would go and learn Danish and Swedish and Norwegian and Irish and Dutch. And so they would bring them back and they would teach them to girls in the school systems of America, Mm -hmm. because it was the first time that it was realized that women needed to have physical exercise and it could not be competitive male sports. So they, they came across (laughs) with the idea of folk dance, which is how dance became part of the physical education programs in America. And they were taught from kindergarten all the way through the university. Mm -hmm. And so this was how women, for one of the first times, could have a job that was independent of anything else. And so it becomes important in women's history Mm -hmm. as, as well. So getting back to these, these, dances as a political vehicle. So last, and, and I, I have to say that um, last year a film came out, it's up for Oscars this year, called Cold War. And the whole beginning of it is about the founding of the Polish National Dance Company, Mazowsze. They call it Mezurek in the film, but it's Mazowsze. And I saw all the credits of mm-hmm. Mazowsze are performing it. So it opens with the credits of a guy going out in the village and recording the, the music of the peasants. And then 
um, it, it goes into a really abusive love affair that I don't want to go into because the, the interesting part really is the founding of the company where they bring all these raw teenagers into this kind of ruined um, sort of gentry residence and they turn it into the national company's place and they start training them. So you see how they train, how they they sing in these voices and mm -hmm. it gets slicker and slicker because these national states have no interest in actual folklore other than archiving it somewhere. What they want for the purposes of being on the stage is spectacle. Mm -hmm. And without spectacle, they have nothing. You can go see any national company you want to. The you, I'm sure are familiar with Valle Folklorico right. de Mexico, or you see um, any of the African national companies. They're all based on Moiseev. Moiseev was the very first of these companies. When he comes over in 1958 and totally upends people's notions of what dancing is all about, that's when I'm really hooked into the business. Mm -hmm. But I realized shortly afterwards that he has a single vocabulary, whether it's done with an Armenian dance or a Lithuanian dance or an Estonian dance or a Kazakh dance. It's all pretty much like winding sheets. One size fits all. So <laughs> there they are all, you know, doing spectacle. Spectacle is, 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 is the reigning issue. And every, every nation state wants one of these. Even the United States at one point was angling, the State Department was angling with the idea of founding a national dance really? company. Really? And they, so they called the dance experts from New York, you know, Martha Graham, I'm sure, and George Balanchine, all these people, they're bringing them in, modern dancers and ballet, and all they can think, American folk dance, all they can think of is two hours of, of, of square dancing <laughs> on the stage, and there was no way you could spectacularize this in any way, shape, or form, because <laughs> they had absolutely no idea. So the State Department actually finally gave up on the idea of having this this national dance company, but they were contemplating and they're expensive. The reason we had to go without pay in the Amon company and the Avas company that I later directed is because there, it would cost millions to pay everybody's benefits, their salaries, their day off, all of this stuff. That's very expensive. You would have to have proper storage for the costumes. You'd have to have... Uh, I mean, you can just keep multiplying mm -hmm. all of the things that go into keeping a national dance company, and it's enormous. And so, therefore, uh, and and they were kind of talked out of it by the so-called experts in New York, but um, they could have really actually had a national dance company. It would have been pretty great to look at. Um, and one of the things you see in the beginning of Cold War is this guy from the party comes out and these kids are getting off the bus and he's telling, you're going to be the representative of our nation. And basically he's telling them they're going to be a diplomatic tool in the, in the mm 
mm-hmm. the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to go out and make a case for this is what Poland is like. We're wonderful people. Come have dinner with us and we're, we're lovely people. And, and that's what these dance companies do. They create these visual impressions. One of my basic gut feelings in my profession as a dance historian is basically to tell my colleagues who are in history and social sciences and political science, look at mass movement, look at dance as an alternative lens for looking at the politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my colleagues, Miatek Boduszenski, who teaches in politics here, invited me to his seminar to teach a course or to give a lecture on the arts in the political arena. And then he saw the Cold War, and of course, he's from Poland, so he gets immediately what he's looking at. And he said, I got it. I got what... Because if you look at the 2008 Beijing Olympics... Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that. And you look at it, and what they're saying in movement, you couldn't possibly convey diplomatically in words, which is we're the greatest here. When everybody's yeah. watching them. And, mm-hmm. and everybody's watching us. And we're the only country with the talent, the money, the manpower, everything. And, and we can do this. No one else can do it. And they were right. No one else could put on a, a spectacle that would right. match that. So, you know, here I am teaching this stuff. And all of a sudden, choreographic politics comes to life as 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 a, a an actual living event that you could not possibly put in words. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the, the Olympics because I was thinking, you know, not just China, but you go back through history, the, uh, you know, recent Olympics, um, there's always this presentation of our national character and so much of it is through dance. Mm-hmm. That's right. And... It becomes then a lens that people, and, and people are in a little uncomfortable with it. Scholars thinking, well, how am I going to describe their footwork? You don't have to. All you have to do is, is to observe keenly how these companies convey a particular message and it just resonates with you. You, you look at it and you, you look at uh, Amalia Hernandez's notion of Chiapas. Here are nine lovely ladies in these black lace embroidered dresses waltzing around the stage. And I'm having this juxtaposition in my mind's eye of the revolutionaries with all these masks, you know, on the nightly news. And I'm trying to put this together, mm-hmm. right? So, so images become extremely crucial in my mind as far as what you're, you're seeing. It's like a, a friend of mine before Yugoslavia went to war and uh, he was studying the dances there. And he goes to this concert and he notices that in the audience there are Serbs and there are Croats and there are Muslims and each is only clapping for the dances from their background. Mm -hmm. And he said, 
he knew the country was about ready to fall apart. That would never huh. have happened a year prior to that event. Yeah. Huh. So it becomes a tool in our investigative and our research and our intellectual toolbox that to our own peril, we're not looking at closely enough. Mm -hmm. Everything has to be a document. Well, not really. Yeah. Uh, do you have any any particular favorites among the folk dances that you've... You know... It, or which one stands out you remember yeah. fondly? Well, I've probably choreographed around 200. So... Um, to pick your favorite child. It would be very, <laughs> it would be very difficult uh, to pick my favorite child. Um, I would say that... Um, you know, I began learning Iranian dance when I first met those students. So in, in many ways, it's built into my body. I taught, started, unlike the dances from Croatia or Serbia, which had all these people already out investigating the field, Iranian dance had nothing like that. So mm. my book was the very first mm. um, serious scholarly work on the topic to the point and I call it choreophobia because when I went to CLA, I, my, my, my uh, committee, my PhD committee wanted me to have an Iranist on my committee mm -hmm. because they wanted to know that my Persian was fluent enough that I was functioning in it. So I, so I went to UCLA, I went to six professors, not one of them would be associated with anything to do with dance. Uh -huh. well, they, were they all men? They were all men. Uh -huh. Interesting. But it, it would have probably been the same with a, a female academic as well. So, and so I went to the Near Eastern department uh -huh. and I talked to the head of that who was a woman and but was not from the Middle East. Uh -huh. She said, oh, we have this uh, young man who's come to study uh, Persian miniatures to see what kinds of musical instruments they played in different historical periods. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, I want to do a similar thing looking at dance, um, which had different issues. Um, and I, I called him up and I told him that I understood he was looking what his project was and that I would, was going to do the same thing with dance. And he said, Hamesh Fahishagiyeh. It's all prostitution. And I thought, <laughs> wow, if this is an intellectual, what am I dealing with? Uh -huh. So the, I, the word choreophobia came to me, even though it wasn't a real word in English, yeah. because of these experiences, I'm dealing with intellectuals, you know, and I, I mean, I have been made aware by my friends through the decades that I had studied that, you know, and it, people who entertained were not uh, you know, they weren't the kinds of people you wanted to associate with, which was a very different thing in America where everybody is profiled unto death as to who they are, you know, if you're a singer or a dancer, all those things. So already I'm looking at, you know, cultural dissonance 
and I and you know I'm curious. I want to know what all this is about. So I was aware from a very early age that there was there was something going on, and I think that the fortune as I have been is to have lived through this. So when I studied these national dance companies, I knew what they looked like. I knew what it was like to put one together because I had done it. I knew what it was like creating costumes. I knew what it was like uh, putting a program together. Where are all the dancers? I had, you know, lists of programs. I, I had, like, when I was directing, I had 12 tall male dancers, 12 short male dancers, 12 tall female dancers, 12 short female dancers, because <laughs> I knew that's what the national companies did. So I have to know where every one of those bodies is, how long it takes them to get from costume A to costume B. So when I went to interview the Egyptian national company or the, um, the Croatian national company, I knew from experience, what those companies were like behind the scenes. It wasn't like I was going into something that was totally alien to, to me, right? right. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. so I knew what I was looking at. I knew, I knew by experience what went in to having a dancer coming in through the door at the first time and what it was like having getting them prepared for performance. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and I knew what it was like to do the research into those dances, which is one reason I taught myself how to read Croatian, was because I needed to know what did those costumes mean? What did this piece mean? And, and so by the time I'm in grad school, I have this vast body of information that nobody but me is interested in, right? <laughs> My dancers weren't interested in the kind of minutiae that I was. So, so for me, moving into academia, uh, it was the greatest intellectual journey of my life was going and l learning to look at what I had done in a meaningful way. So, and so I started writing the books, and when I graduated, I really did think, okay, I'm 60 years old now. This is, this is pretty much the end of my professional life. And I was lucky Pomona College wanted someone to teach a course as an adjunct faculty member in uh, world dance traditions. This was the time colleges and universities were expanding um, their, their horizons. They were looking at how do we bring in uh, minority groups and how do we integrate them into the school. Ethnomusicology. Ethnomusicology. And, music, and, like that, and yeah. I was at the beginnings of ethnomusicology because there were two centers of it, UCLA being one of them. When I was a young student, that program had just gotten going. Mm -hmm. So I, and, and actually... I did Iranian dances for them for their end-of-the-year concert. So I, I was really aware. I knew Mantlehood very well and Hazel Chung, his, his second wife, and so on. So uh, I was entwined in that world. And so I had a, an idea of what it was, and I was trying to do something like that in dance. And, and I, 
started teaching here and I realized, gee, I'm on a college as the kind of college I would always want to go to. And it would never have occurred to me as a kid from South Central LA that this was a place that I could go to school. I didn't know there was such a thing as a scholarship. I mean, talk about being from the first in your family to go to school. I was that kid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I look back at how, how politically naive I was as I was looking at the Moise of Dance Company, like most Americans. I thought this was the true expression of the Soviet people, right? (laughs) And, and just later, because your question was so terrific about how, how authentic is this? The minute you take something out of where it is done as an organic part of someone's life and you put it on the stage, it is you're making decisions from that very moment as the choreographer. I was making decisions. No overweight people, no old people, no children, no uh, livestock, no, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, looking at peasant life. So all of the stuff in peasant life, I'm making decisions about what to leave out. But I'm not. minutes instead of five hours. Yeah, exactly. And, and. Thank goodness. And, and, and thank goodness. But, but also I, I'm realizing as I go back and one of the things I would do is every summer I I would get National Endowment for the Arts grants and I would go to especially Yugoslavia, but Bulgaria and other countries. And they would have these folk festivals and the peasants would come out and they were they would do their dances, right? So, gee, I'm looking at the authentic thing. No, they're making decisions too <laughs> because – Those villages that are offered to come to those places, they're told they can only do dances that are from Croatia, right? So they they go back and they realize that the the dances in this village repertoire currently are the polka, the waltz, and and you go back and they're the mazurka. and, And so they have to go back to, they have two sources that they're looking at, right? First source. They go back to their grandparents. Mm-hmm. What did they dance when you were young? Mm-hmm. Right. So the parents may have been really terrible dancers when they were young. So there goes the idea of you look for the oldest person in the village. They may have been off pitch from the minute they sang from <laughs> age of four. So that's not a great source always. The other source they went to was the National Dance Company. So they would go to a member of that, have them take the bus out to their village and teach them and pay them some money. So they're getting... So, so, so this it's manufactured and then... This is feedback, the feedback that researchers never looked at, Yeah. right? Everything, they thought everything was going from those villages into those companies. That wasn't how it was working. I mean, a lot of it was, but, but it went... It, it, there was also... The, the coming back. So I, I had to look at all of this stuff that I had taken for granted about what was off because, you know, the researcher would go out and he or she would say, oh, they so many steps to the left, so many steps to the right, a hop, a jump, a turn, and whatever. So they, they would write it all out and they would write a little bit about it. But it was like the city is going to the country to learn 
the dances. But in fact, there's a lot of feedback happening mm-hmm. in, in in that process. It's like uh, Amalia Hernandez went to Veracruz and the villages there. And she said, oh, they're wearing the costumes that we're wearing because ours are prettier and they saw them on television and they made copies of them and <laughs> made them uh, what we more glamorous. So it sort of reduces the diversity of 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 experience too, right? I mean, it's absolutely it, it's there like becomes you, an just official, like languages. You know, everyone in France speaks Parisian French now, right? There, you get a standardized language, and when you realize in 1875, only half the country could speak French, then you get a real right. a <laughs> realization in 1870. Two percent of the population of Italy could speak standard Italian. So you, you look at, and, and and I have to look at. And the that same stuff. sort of thing is happening now with dance and tradi- those kinds of traditions exactly. because of that feedback loop. It's it, it's it's all about feedback. But I've I've been so blessed in my field that I did it before I began to examine it on a scholarly level Mm -hmm. so that when I wrote choreographic politics about those national dance companies and what kinds of messages they were sending, that I had to go back to my own experience, not only of watching those companies, but of the whole idea of having done it, that I I did those things. Mm -hmm. So I know what... I know exactly what I'm looking at because I was able to to say, okay, I see that costume and I know how they altered it to make it more visual or to make it more spectacular. So I, I know I I I have a a, a a sense of what it is I'm I'm doing. And then I did that, you know dancing across borders and I looked at how do how do immigrant groups mm-hmm. look at uh, how do immigrant groups use dance as a means of presenting themselves to non uh, in group people how do of preserving their traditions right. when they're sort of surrounded right. how by do Greek Americans present themselves. Well, that's a dynamic situation also. Mm -hmm. So I can remember the Greeks in 1950s, but I also know what they're doing now. And having looked at the Greek national company, again, that feedback, all of the groups in America who are usually attached to a Greek church want to look just like the national dance company. And the national dance company... knows this and they've prepared kits for these groups so that when they go visit in Dance Athens company to in see a box. the group, they've got, <laughs> they've got all the materials yep. in those. So, you know, through the years, I've, I've learned how all this, this takes place, but the representational aspect of this stuff is, is absolutely crucial to identity markers. And this becomes a a point in which uh, it becomes very political. How, as a Greek American, am I going to show myself? And now 
in, in the last couple of decades, we're starting to get young people, maybe second, third generation, who are saying, I don't want to look like a, a waiter at a Mexican restaurant. I want to do something on my own. And I have this Iranian friend who said, I don't want to be depicted as a primitive man at the dawn of time with a frame banging on a frame drum in a robe. I live in the 21st century and I want to create works that are reflective of that experience mm. and not rehash the past. So all of all of this is politics. Yeah. Right? How it's the politics of representation. How am I, as an Iranian American, going to show myself? Mm -hmm. Right. So, so all of this, you're dealing with, you know, decades long, centuries long images of what what that means, and it's. I think in some ways how the Chinese cultural revolution happened about wanting to break up that centuries long thing saying we don't live there anymore. We want to be something different. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. and of course they threw the baby out with the bathwater, but that's another, <laughs> another issue. I want to go back a little bit if we can to choreophobia. And, sure. and you examine in, in that book, which was you know, a lot of the work you did uh, for your dissertation, um, you, most of your work as a dancer and choreographer was group choreography, right? That's right. But then in, in choreophobia, you um, study more solo dance and, and um, uh, improvisational, improvisational dance, solo yeah. dance. Right. Well, the, the, the reason is, is because I learned it that way. It's something you get up and do at parties, right? Mm -hmm. So so what I learned, I turned into group dances. Mm -hmm. So that was the choreographic process. Right. I would stand in front of the mirror, hear a piece of music I, I really fell in love with, decide, okay, I really, I, I love this so much. Um, so actually out at UC Riverside, there was this piece of music I heard and I just worked in front of the mirror and I had a class. So I started teaching them bit by bit uh, movements. And I taught them how to improvise as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but I took those movements that I had improvised that I was so familiar with, and I created uh, a group dance out of it. So that's how you negotiate the dances. They're not made to be group dances. Mm -hmm. They never were. Mm -hmm. I, and I, by this, I mean the solo improvised urban dances. Right that I was talking about. But there are, of course, tribal dances where people more or less move together. Mm -hmm. And some of the findings that you had from the dances in Iran, can you tell us a little bit about that, from, from some of the findings from your work in choreophobia? And then um, we'll ask you a little bit about a more recent example of that. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, when I started working on... Uh, I mean, you have to realize that I started my graduate work at the age of 57. So already I had had, you know, pretty much mm -hmm. 30 years of experience. And um, so I, I was both trying to look at it in a new way. Mm -hmm. And I, I realized that... Uh, 
choreophobia, and of course I gave you some examples like the professors at UCLA mm -hmm. and so on, um, that this was a pretty widespread attitude within Iranian society, but I also was very well aware that there are certain Protestant sects in the United States where, um, do, do you know what play party games are? Mm -hmm. Do you know what they are? No. Have you ever played Ring Around the Rosie oh. or oh, Go In and Out the Window? Mm -hmm. It's what yeah. it, it's the kind of game usually uh, we we assign it to children, but young adults in those Protestant sects do it because if they're doing these movements, but they're not accompanied by the devil's instrument, the fiddle, then they're not dancing. Actually, <laughs> so it's okay for young people to entertain themselves in this way if they're not actually dancing. And some of these sects have um, very specific things. You can't leap one foot over the other. There are certain <laughs> things you can't do, otherwise you're dancing, right? Mm -hmm. so, so I realized that um, the study that I was doing would be able to be used by others and say, oh yeah, I know a group of people who have these attitudes. I mean, you need only go to belly dancing, which is a neighboring dance tradition to Iran, to realize that, oh, belly dancers and, and all of the, the stuff that conjures up. Um, it, because Iranian dance is not well known in America. Belly dance is very well known, mm -hmm. or at least people think they know what it is. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, there was a point in the second female, uh, the feminist movement in the 70s when there were over a million American women in belly dance classes. Mm -hmm. So it, it, th this was not a small thing. So belly dance brings up all kinds of of notions, but you can go back as much as the tango and think of, oh, ethnic men do the tango. For that, read Valentino, mm -hmm. Rudolph Valentino and these people. Only ethnic men do these because American men don't have hips, right? <laughs> no. So, so <laughs> Latin dancing is kind of, you know. So mm -hmm. I, I started looking at, at dances that bring up negative images to people. And what's that all about? Is it sex? Is it gender? Is it, you know, all of the things that we think, is it religion? Um, and then even I was drawn back where I did a history called um, The Dangerous Lives of Public Entertainers. And in that book, I went back to ancient Greece and Rome, who were the entertainers, they were orphans who had been trained or they were slaves. Mm -hmm. And you could get a big amount of money back and they were expected to be sexually available. And the idea of the body in front of public eyes was equivalent to being penetrated physically, sexually, mm -hmm. and or tortured. Um, so, so your body had been violated, and and if you were in front of the public, then you fell into this category. Gladiators fell into this category. 
That's why they were always slaves. This was not something that honorable people took up. You didn't say, I want to grow up to be a gladiator. That's right. Because these people fell into a class of people called infamy. And if that doesn't tell you that word, <laughs> everything you need to know about infamia was mm-hmm. a, a, a juridical class of people mm-hmm. who could be tortured, who could be maltreated, who had no, could not go to court and make complaints. So, um, so I looked at this and realized that choreophobia had a very ancient history mm-hmm. and I started l- looking at it. And if you think about the waltz, can you think of anything more staid than the waltz? When they introduced the waltz into the ballrooms of England and France in 1820, the scandal, the, the <laughs> priests and, and preachers all over Europe were predicting the fall of Western civilization. And now it's danced in every quinceañera. <laughs> and now it's danced at every wedding. Yep. Yes. And so, yes, and I get a paper at least one every year on quinceañeras. Oh, I'm sure. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so kind of wrapping it up in, in a more recent uh, case, we, we'd love to hear what you th- you think about um, Alexandria's Ocasio-Ortez, you know, dance. And what are your thoughts about that? The first time I saw it, I had a gut reaction mm-hmm. uh, because it was posted by a group of right-wing Republicans, I presume anyone from Trump on down, who had assumptions about what it's meant to see a young woman dancing. Mm-hmm. If that does not define choreophobia, the assumption was you would hate her. She was exposing herself, her body. She was having a good time. I presume Republicans don't do that. Um, they, she not was dancing anyway. Not dancing anyway. But the idea was that anyone who was base enough, low enough to allow themselves to be filmed dancing, there's choreophobia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could not have asked for a more <laughs> blatant case of yeah. all of the all of the negative feelings mm-hmm. toward dancing that came tumbling out my favorite moment however had to be when she did a little turn in front of her office right. as she had won the election <laughs> and was entering her own office she did a little thing and absolutely turned the tables on them yeah. to uh, literally exposing them as choreophobes mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 then, then when you look at, okay, well, what does choreophobia mean? It means all the negative things I just said. Here's a person, expo- it, she might as well have been ancient Rome, exposing her body. Uh, uh, this is a class issue. This is an ethnic issue. This brings up all kinds of societal no-nos that the people who posted it thought it would bring mm-hmm. only to have it blow up in their faces. But nevertheless, that was their instinct. Yeah. 
Well, on that note, we're going to have to wrap this up. I have one last, very little question. Um, Do you still play the flute? I still play the flute. (laughs) Do you still sing? um, I can still sing, but not like I used to. (laughs) I did sing publicly until around 2007. That was my last public performance. And I thought, hmm. Was it in Persian? It was in Persian. Uh-huh. I, actually, uh, I don't know that I could sing American music. Uh, I had been so um, enculturated. Mm-hmm. Um, I can sing, you know, Croatian folk music and, of course, did on stage for many years. But um, I never learned to sing in a pop style. So... If if you're used to singing in Persian with microtones, it's it's a very different experience. Yeah. But if uh, the Phil needs a flutist, you're available. Oh yes, I, I could I could <laughs> tootle uh, some background for you. <laughs> well, our thanks to Tony Shea, um, professor of theater and dance, for talking with us about the political and cultural side of dance. Thanks, Tony. You're welcome. And to all who have stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Until next time.